0: You can sign up on my website, zibbyowens.com, under the virtual book club section, or even on Instagram under the link in my bio. I hope you'll find me in all these different channels and enjoy this podcast. Thank you so much to Audible for sponsoring today's episode. For those of you who don't know, Audible is the leading provider of spoken word entertainment and audiobooks, ranging from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, business motivation, and also podcasts. They've recently launched their newest plan called Audible Plus. With Audible Plus, you get full access to their Plus catalog, filled with thousands of select originals, audiobooks, and podcasts, and connects you to just amazing content. The best time to try it is now with their holiday offer, because for only 4 dollars a month for your first six months. This is a fantastic deal. And all you have to do to get it is visit audible.com slash Zibby, Z-I-B-B-Y, or text Zibby, Z-I-B-B-Y to 500-500. Again, visit audible.com slash Zibby or text Zibby to 500-500. 500. I love Audible and listen all the time in my car and on walks. I recently finished Searching for Sylvie Lee by Jean Kwok, also Small Animals by Kim Brooks, His Only Wife by Peace Medi, and also On All Fronts by Clarissa Ward. So those are four of my recent ones. Um, I hope you'll join me in checking out Audible, audible.com slash or text Zibby to 500-500. Did I say that enough times? Liz Vitrone is the author of The Price of Admission. She is a true believer in the healing power of storytelling. A suicide survivor and a recovering anorexic, she found unprecedented support and community in telling intimate stories that speak to the lessons learned in survival and recovery. She has built that community into a safe space for her readers to gather and speak openly and honestly about their own struggles. Today, she's an author, blogger, speaker, and survivor. She shares her stories on lizpatrone.com and lives in a creaky old house in Syracuse, New York, with her ever patient husband, their four children, and an excitable dog named Bo. Welcome, Liz. Thanks so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to talk about your amazing memoir The Price of Admission Embracing a Life of Grief and Joy. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's such a pleasure. Your book was moving and well-written and soulful and I was like, I don't know. I just was like I like love this woman. Oh, <laughs> like, you know when like you read yeah. something and you're just like rooting for the person so much and you care <laughs> right away. Anyway, I had that feeling reading your book. So, yeah. So, would you mind telling listeners what your memoir is about and and what what made you even write a memoir to begin with?
1: Yeah. So, this book was seven years in the making and the book that got published is probably like the fifth iteration of this book. So it <laughs> it was a process. And what happened I think is, so in the book, I talk about the loss of my mother and we lost her after a struggle with addiction and mental illness and she was bipolar and, and eventually she committed suicide and that was about seven years ago now. So if you follow that timeline, you know, it, as soon as she died, I sat down and said, we need to be talking about this stuff. And I've said a lot in interviews and stuff since the book came out that I feel like my mom died of a disease of silence. You know, when we live in a society where we don't talk about these things, we don't do a very good job of dealing with addiction and loss and grief and mental illness as a society. And we didn't do a good job as a family. So, when she died, the very first thing I did was sit down and start writing because I really believe that we need to be talking about this stuff. And that includes my own story, which of course is woven in through the book. So we we talk about my mother, but I also talk about my own struggle with an eating disorder and my own suicide attempt when I was younger and my own struggles with depression and anxiety. So I, I think these are universal themes that we we need to be doing better, telling the truth about.
0: That's amazing. And did you, so, so many of the scenes here were crystal clear as if you were like living them then, like the scene in the elevator, (laughs) like the scene with your daughter in your tummy and like, they were just so clear. So are you the type of person who was journaling or recording these along the way, or do you just have an amazing memory?
1: Well, I, I think maybe it's somewhere in between those two things. I don't know if you do if you watch The Office, but there's that when Pam and Jim are getting married and they do that little like mental camera thing, you know, where there's these moments and you just kind of know that these moments are something bigger than they're they're feel like in the actual when you're living them. And I think like especially if you're a writer, but probably if you're any sort of creator or, or artist at all. You look at your life as you're living it through that lens a little bit. And so there are these moments, I think, that seem sort of ordinary. And then you go, oh, this is going to mean something later
0: on. I know those moments. (laughs) I do. I know those moments. <laughs> well, there were so many passages that I wanted to, you know, at least flag because I thought they were so beautiful. This is, I love this part. You said, and this is probably how you titled your book, but I've come to realize that the true lie the darkness tells is one of omission. The darkness doesn't tell you how pain is simply the price of admission. And it's a steal, really, a bargain. One, I will pay a hundred times over for the simple pleasure of a beautiful sunrise or a mug of tea heavy in my hands or another mile run or a hug from a long time. Friend, or the smile—I I'm might—I'm like, going to cry—of a child across a crowded room, for the comfort of my soon-to-be husband's arm strong across my waist, while he watched me sleep. For the moments when the darkness whispers its lies in the night, and I am able still to answer it with the only two words that matter: "I'm here." Oh my gosh. <laughs> Does that make you want to cry too? Hearing it again, it makes me want to cry.
1: Well, hearing you read it gives me goosebumps. I think you should just read the book to me all day long.
0: (laughs) I have more passages. I I don't usually just sit down and read somebody's book to themselves, but (laughs) that story, that
1: particular story, which is really the story of my own suicide attempt for me, was the hardest story to tell. And it was the story, like there's this idea in writing that every story that you tell will be the same story in some fashion until you tell the story you're supposed to tell. And that was that for me, which is why it was important to me that the book be named The Price of Admission and, you know, that that kind of be the linchpin. Even though I set out to write a story in my mother's honor, it really, that story for me was the one that I was very, very scared to release into the world. And it's also the one that was the most freeing to tell the truth about.
0: In the book, you were saying how you were afraid to even tell your husband and you have the moment where you finally confess to him and like, he was your boyfriend then, right? I think you weren't even married. And now you've gone from that place of like, should I tell the person in the world closest to me to like, Actually, now I'm going to tell anybody who can read. (laughs) I'm going to tell
1: you in the grocery store while we (laughs) wait.
0: Wait, tell me more about how it feels freeing.
1: You know, I think we carry this stuff with us, and we think that we're the only person that could possibly ever feel this way. And that can be anything, you know, for me, it was that story, but it could be anything for anybody, any story of struggle or hardship or any story where you feel like you are not necessarily the hero or painted in the best light. And those are the things that when you put them out there, I feel like they make the most immediate universal connection with people because everybody has that. It doesn't have to be the same version of that, but everybody carries that kind of stuff with them. And so what I really have found is the hardest stuff to put out there is the stuff that makes the most immediate and true connection with people, which is really a gift, I think, when you think about it. It's
0: true. I mean, we hide so much. I feel like you know, like you, I always am. I'm sort of like hard on my sleeve in my writing, but not as mm-hmm. much in my talking mm-hmm. with people. And I, people have, have said like, "Oh, you're brave to write about this." And I'm like, "Well, it doesn't feel like bravery to me. It just feels like finally I can like get it out of my own head, yeah, like, for sure. you know, and just like get it out." I don't know.
1: I feel like it cuts through a lot of that minutia. So you know, I, I have relationships with people that I, I've met as a result of writing, or I've met as a result of things they've put out on the internet. And we get to skip through all these preliminary layers because it's already there. Mm-hmm. You know, we've already laid the baseline of okay, we're gonna we're gonna do this and we're gonna be intimate, and we're gonna tell our stories. Which for me, somebody who's introverted and not really good at that whole small talk minutia stuff, that's also a self-serving gift. So I mean, I hear you and I get that too, that whole, oh, you're so brave to be putting this out there. But I, in many ways I'm doing it for myself just as much as I'm doing it for the rest of the world. <laughs> yeah.
0: I know it's true. It's like, I've been talking to you for maybe five minutes and we've already talked about your suicide attempt. and your <laughs> You know what I mean? It's like <laughs> your eating disorder and all this stuff. And if we met at a cocktail party, this would never even come up, you know? <laughs> I mean, obviously this is a different format and I'm interviewing you for a reason, but I want to read just one more part. I didn't know it then, of course, but it was the last, this is when your mom calls you after you were stuck in the elevator. Mm -hmm. I didn't know it then, of course, but it was the last conversation we ever had. She died a few days later and in the first chaotic weeks of grief, I thought of that elevator and how quickly everything can change. You can be just standing still, all minding your own business when the floor drops out from under you and you're thrown right off your feet. It's completely terrifying and it's easy then to get stuck in unfamiliar territory where the only way out is going to be calling out Marco and trusting, even while your heart tries to gallop right out of your chest, that the polo is coming. And it is. There are people who will quite literally lift you up, grab your hands and pull. It's happened before. And I'm going to cry again. And it (laughs) will happen again. Of this, I am sure, as long as I continue to have the faith to call out. So nice. (laughs) Oh my gosh, sorry. I'm like so emotional. I know that you were dealing with your own... No, it's just anyone who's gone through grief has found, or really anything hard, as you point out so eloquently, having just literally dropped, you know, floors in an elevator and been (laughs) stuck. You know that your that your life just sort of followed the feeling, and you just captured it so beautifully. Anyway, especially because you were thirty six weeks pregnant in the elevator. Oh my gosh, could you even get into another elevator after that? I worked on the.
1: I think it was the 16th floor at that time. So I was hesitant to get into another elevator, but I think I was even more hesitant to walk down 16 <laughs> flights yeah. of stairs.
0: And what were you, what was that job? Like what were you doing in the office building? I was a
1: computer programmer. I still am a computer programmer, although I don't work in that building anymore. But yeah, it's a very, very opposite of writing professional life that I have.
0: Wow. Like coding and building yeah. sites and all of that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I work, I support financial systems, so I'm sort of an applications programmer. And it's funny, I think that the two sides, you know, the the computer programming world where there is a very clear and finite answer to a problem, and I find that answer to a problem, and I give it to people, and it's very satisfying. And then there's the creative side of telling a story where you could tell a story 800 different ways, and you have no idea what's the right way or the wrong way, or how that story is going to be received when you give it to the world. And they sound like very opposing ideas, but they do a really good job, I think, of balancing each other out.
0: Wow, that's really interesting. How amazing you have both sides of your brain. I only have one of those sides, so, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. Tell me about... A little bit more about the eating disorder piece of your story, if you don't mind, and how you, you told in the book about going to an inpatient facility with an, a much older woman named Tina and how that was sort of a warning flag for you that you would okay. not let yourself become that person when you got older. But tell me about your sort of not getting over it, but how you worked, how you found your way through that mess and and what lingering effects do you, you still wrestle with today?
1: Sure. So the active part of my eating disorder was really, I mean, we're going on over 20 years ago now when I was 16, 17, 18, and I was anorexic primarily with a little bit of bulimia in there in the later stages. And at the time, there really just wasn't the treatment options that there are now. And thank God that there are now. I think that's important. And I've done some work with some agencies and I'm excited that that is happening finally. But at the time, we just kind of all were shepherded into a, you know, treatment facility, which was a generic place where they treated uh, addiction, suicide attempts, eating disorders, anything where you needed, where you weren't safe being home by yourself. And I had a roommate who was also an eating disorder patient, and she had to be in her, I think, 50s, maybe, which to me at the time was ancient because I was a teenager. And to see her struggling, honestly, in the same way that I was struggling, was so, it was such like you said, a wake up call to me because I really had thought, okay, well, I'm dealing with all this crap now because I'm young and I don't know what I'm doing. But I mean, by the time I'm in my fifties, I will have figured everything out and everything will be fine. And and to realize that that wasn't just a given was kind of jarring and scary. And I credit that moment really more than than any therapy session or, or treatment that happened as kind of an impetus to really start pursuing getting better and getting healthy. Now, getting better and getting healthy was a long, convoluted process. It probably is for anybody, but especially then when we didn't really have a lot of options as far as treatment. And I think anybody who's ever lived with an eating disorder would tell you, you don't ever really get away from that completely. You know, I would never stand here and say I'm totally healed. It's it's still something that lingers in the background all the time. But I've had to develop a much healthier relationship with my body, especially through four pregnancies and raising children and especially not to generalize, but raising daughters, teenage daughters who are starting to deal with some of the same ideologies that haunted me then. But it lives there, you know, and it lives there, I see it when life gets stressful. And I mean, I'm not sure I've had life get more stressful than it is right now. So it's definitely there. Another reason why I think it's important that we talk about this stuff because if I didn't talk about it, it would be unhealthy for me personally.
0: So, do you still get therapy? Like, do you still have like things in place to make sure you don't sort of slip back?
1: I don't actively get eating disorder centric treatment right now, but I do keep in place for myself like a support network of things, and and I will fall back on that when I can see that stressors are popping up or you know triggers are popping up. I think a good example might be so when my third daughter was born, I had postpartum depression and I had never I didn't have postpartum depression with the first or the second. So it was kind of a surprise when it happened and I didn't have any experience with it and I wasn't prepared. And so when I got pregnant for the fourth time and then my mom died during that pregnancy very close to the end of that pregnancy when my son was going to be born, I said, "Okay, the risk is huge right now. You know, I've had postpartum depression before. I'm dealing with grief at the same time, so I'm going to mobilize this network. You know, I'm going to reach out to my people. I'm going to reach out to my treatment providers. I'm going to kind of knit this safety net underneath myself and have people check in and have myself check in. And but you know, that's the beauty of having been through stuff before. That I think the problem is that you don't know to do that if you haven't lived it before, which is again, why we need to be talking about this stuff and why we need to be laying that groundwork for people.
0: So there's someone in my life who's struggling with an eating disorder now and doesn't want to get treatment. As mm-hmm. somebody who loves her so much, what advice would you have? Like, what can I do as a friend? Or I'm sure other people out there have people who maybe they suspect have eating disorders or things like that. Is there anything you can do or does the person have to be ready? What do you think?
1: I mean, the, the person is just like any other addiction really where I think the person has to be ready to pursue treatment in order to get healthy. But having people in your life that are understanding and supportive and primarily understand that this is an illness and not a choice, which is not always how people view things like this. But if you can look at it like that, that kind of gives you permission and grace to always be there no matter what the situation is. And that is so important. Because I think when you're, especially when you're in the late stages of, his, of an eating disorder, which is both when you're getting real cl- really close to getting treatment, but also when things are getting dangerous, I think they kind of go hand in hand. The instinct is to push everybody away because people are starting to, you know, notice and be concerned and push you towards treatment. So any, anybody who can survive in their own way, because it's, it's hard to love somebody in that situation, anybody who can survive and stay there with grace and patience and understanding, is giving that person, I think, a better chance than they would have if they were truly all alone.
0: And what would you say to the person if they, like, let's say there's somebody listening who's really struggling themselves right now?
1: That It gets better. There is hope on the other side of all of this. And it is better on the other side of all of this. That leap is probably one of the scariest things I've ever taken in my life. You know, that leap to abandon what becomes the comfort center of living in this illness and what becomes the identity of living in this illness. It sounds crazy because you're sick and you're you're in pain and you're not in a good place, but that becomes almost your, your comfort zone. And to leap out of that is terrifying, but to land someplace softer and safer and healthier is so worth it.
0: It's so worth it. Thank you. That was, I'm hoping that somebody who needed to hear that today heard that. So thank you. I have to get a tissue. Wait, hold on one second. I don't think I've sure. ever done this before in the middle, but I'm done. <laughs> hold on one second. Hold on. Okay. I'm so sorry.
1: No, you're fine. I could just sit here and stare at your color coded book arrangement it's so satisfying to me yeah
0: I, know, I love it it's like it was all the way around
1: It's oh my like, gosh
0: yeah I have to redo it soon but because I've gotten so lazy I'm now I'm like throwing things everywhere but <laughs> I'm like overflowing with books how do
1: you find time to read all these books is what I want to know
0: oh man I don't know I mean <laughs> I, I just do I you know I don't finish every single book I sit down to read and yeah. I figured out a way to like I I don't know if it's called speed reading. I don't know what it is I'm doing, but I can look. I can go through with just like a second or two and get most important information off of every page. Every other weekend, I don't have my kids, so like Mm -hmm. I don't have them today. They're with my ex, so I can read all day. And I Mm -hmm. like I'm about to take a drive, and I'm gonna listen to a book the whole time. Yeah, 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 you know, I can. I don't know. I just find the time with my kids. Like, I'm always at bedtime have a book because it yeah. used to be that, like bedtime. It's like it takes like four hours to put your kids to bed. Right. So they know that as soon as the first time that they go in the bed, I'm going to sit down and start reading. Yeah. So I always get a good hour.
1: hour in I do that back. too. I've read before bed since I was five years old. And I think that's where wanting to write a book comes from, honestly, is that like voracious consumption of reading. It becomes the like the logical way that you think of to tell a story. Almost.
0: What types of books do you like to read? Oh. I mean, anything, really.
1: I, I, I probably prefer women stories and women authors, but I am, since the pandemic started, I'm in this ridiculous cycle of only reading psychological thrillers because they're hmm. so absorbing that they can distract me from everything else that's going on. But I do worry what that's doing to my mental health because I find <laughs> myself going, okay, who do I know that's a murderer? <laughs>
0: oh that's the great thing about books though you can decide it, it's so crazy like they all look the same right yeah but in one you're going to be like terrified and right. in one, you're going to be crying with emotion and in one you're going to learn all these factual things and they <laughs> and yet they all just look like words I, I mean i know this is like ridiculous that i'm saying but it's like no and you're like, right really special, to me it's a, like a level
1: playing field you know you can be a nobody and write a book and you can be, you know, the world's most famous person and write a book and they're both books on the shelf at Barnes and Noble. It's
0: crazy. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Which is great in a way because that's really what people are I mean, we all are just people with thoughts and feelings in our heads. Yeah. And getting them out on paper is just one way to share. And yeah. I mean, famous or not, I mean, who's to say your any more your story is any more important than yours? You know what I mean? Like right. uh, anyway. So sort of loosey-goosey talk. But one last thing I just wanted to touch on was the suicide element of your loss because that's a particular beast in and of itself. Mm -hmm. You talked about the priest at the time asking if it was okay to even share at the service that it was a suicide. And while you were saying yes, everybody was saying no. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, like, in your own family or your own extended circle, when did that sort of protection and hiding almost go away if it did? Or is this like a big sort of like coming out of her death?
1: So her
0: family is not okay with me
1: talking about this. Right? Interesting. Okay. And there's a big schism there and has been since shortly after the death, which is a huge source of sadness for me, but not enough that I felt like I, could, I had to stop. Because I feel like putting this story out there was honoring her, which I think is kind of a funny thing to say, because, you know, I, I tell some stories about her that probably are not totally flattering. But my mother, despite all of her faults, despite the fact that, you know, she would wake up in the hospital after us calling 911 and her going in an ambulance intoxicated and say, did the neighbors see? I think she would have wanted the end of her life to help save somebody else's life. I truly, truly believe that. And, you know, without getting into all sorts of proof-proof stuff, our relationship didn't end when she died. And I have full confidence that she supports this book and this story and the work that I've done. And I wouldn't be doing it if I didn't believe that. But to specifically address what you're asking, I mean, I know we do not do a good job talking about suicide. We don't do a good job talking about death in general. And suicide is a whole nother level. And then grieving a suicide is a whole nother level because it takes you a while to get to where you would start if you just thought, not I don't want to say just, if you had lost somebody in a more natural fashion and so like I was saying earlier I started writing this book you know seven years ago when my mom first died well that first iteration of this book was angry and hurt and abandoned and you know I was the martyr and she was the villain and thank god that thing has not seen the light of day but also thank god that thing came out of me because it had to and I don't think you know that kind of grief is not the kind of grief that people are going to necessarily feel comfortable talking to their friends about, because who wants to say, you know, my mom died a month ago, and I'm still so mad. That's not a thing that people feel comfortable saying. And I think it's just the natural progression of losing somebody in that fashion. So seven years have gone by, and I'm not angry anymore. But that takes time. And I think it takes honest conversations and I hope that the book can help people have those honest conversations and help people understand that all of those reactions the anger, the abandonment, the sadness, the everything is totally normal. And when you lose somebody who's been struggling like that and you've had this tumultuous relationship, there's that I'm gonna screw this up and I don't want to say it wrong, but almost this sense of oh relief, like okay, well, at least that's over. And that is a thing that people really can't talk about because it sounds so off-putting and terrible, but it's just natural. It's just part of all of that. And I think we need to talk about that stuff.
0: That's amazing. I hope you're thinking of starting if you haven't already, and I just don't know about it. I don't know, some sort of bigger, I don't know, way of spreading like a movement about what you're talking about because yeah. you need it you need to like be the leader of this movement. <laughs> I do.
1: Now that the book is out there and you know, that that work is done. I really do want to start doing some community work in this realm because my story of having been a suicide survivor myself and then losing my mother to suicide, I think gives me the ability to see it from both sides and to speak to both sides in sort of a unique way. And I think I want to encourage more people to be having these conversations.
0: I should introduce you. So I'm on the board of the Child Mind Institute. It's for children's mental health to, and also to help reduce the stigma of mental illness. And mm-hmm. it's more for childhood, you know, issues, everything from anxiety to depression, to, you know, everything. But maybe you could reach parents that way, or you could reach yeah. the children who are struggling and tell your story to them. And, you know, well, anyway, for sure. For
1: yeah. yeah, no, that would be great
0: offline about it but yeah just trying to think of good channels for you to be able to use that are already existing as opposed to having to put your own community together to get the message out anyway not that this is my job but okay last question what advice would you have to aspiring authors
1: oh right right button chair right it's funny i I did a podcast yesterday and the, the host asked me you know so how was the experience of writing this book and i'm like oh it was the worst thing in my life (laughs) which doesn't sound like much of an advertisement for writing, but I think that's how you know it's what you're supposed to be doing is that it is just so unbelievably hard and exhausting and consuming and all in. You know, like I remember going to bed at night and falling asleep and then I would wake up an hour later just with chapters like flying through my brain. And I think we all need to be telling our stories. And it's not about... You know, being trained as a writer, or being even being a good writer, it's about putting pen to paper and putting the story out there. I remember going to a, a book lecture when I was probably in my twenties, and I had always wanted to write. You know, even though that wasn't my career, and and the author I can't even remember who it was stood up and. Said, you know, people are always coming up to me and saying, I have a story inside of me. And she was saying that she found that offensive. Like, nobody comes up to a surgeon and says, I have a surgery inside of me, but they come up (laughs) to writers and say they have a story inside of them. It's funny because I think my reaction to now that happens to me, you know, people come up to me and say, What would your advice be to write? Or, you know, I want to tell this story. Or they tell me their story. And I think the fact that people are constantly coming up to me and saying they have a story inside of them is the best part of all of this you know there's nothing more universal than the fact that we all want to be heard and we all want to relate and we all want to have that community it's beautiful
0: wow well this has been really inspiring and i hope that we stay in touch and i'm 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 just like so happy to have met you oh thank you so much thank you for your beautiful book price of admission I <laughs> to go pick this up anyway thank you thank you for thank coming you on the show okay. bye Liz bye thank you thanks for Audible sponsoring this episode get your amazing deal $4.95 for six months for your first six months for their holiday Audible Plus offer go to audible.com slash Zibi or text zibby to 500 500 thanks Audible thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books